You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Dana Mathewson was 10 years old when she contracted a rare autoimmune disease, which impacted her spinal cord. After being in the hospital for about a month, her mom wanted her to give adaptive sports a try. As an athletic child, she was extremely hesitant to see what adaptive sports would be like in comparison. Like other athletes, she never thought they would be competitive enough. But as she states, she was quickly proven wrong and fell in love with the sport of wheelchair tennis. Dana would go on to attend the University of Arizona, one of the few schools in the country that had a collegiate-level adaptive sports program, which gave her a scholarship to compete on the wheelchair tennis team. Being able to play sports at a Division I school was a dream of hers. Now, she is pursuing a doctorate, but also focused on returning to her second Paralympic Games. She is the number one ranked female wheelchair tennis player in the U.S. and currently ranked ninth in the world leading up to Tokyo. So, Dana, I wanted to ask right off the bat, you know, why why the sport of tennis? That is a really good question. And it's not one that I get asked a lot. So that's a great thing to ask me. Um, why tennis? There's a lot of answers to that. I think, number one, I really love problem solving. And tennis is literally a game of problem solving because, like, you could play one person one day and you could play the same person another day and you might have completely different matches. Um, on another hand, you might play one person one day, a completely different person the next day. And those are completely different matches. Then you've also got to factor in, you know, nature, you've got sun, you've got wind, you've got like, are the courts level, like all sorts of different things can affect a tennis match. And I think as much as those variables can be frustrating, they're also really fun because when you figure out a problem like that, it's so exhilarating for me. So like, for instance, if the wind is blowing a certain direction and you use that properly to get your ball to do a certain thing and it really outfoxes your opponent or whatever, it's a great feeling. Um, So that's something that kind of keeps me interested in tennis and makes it always fun for me. But I also love that tennis has allowed me to see the whole world. I don't think many sports allow for um, travel to the extent that tennis does. Like I'm lucky enough that I get to go to pretty much every country except for, you know, the really cold Antarctica or things like that. (laughs) I haven't been to Russia yet, but um, I've gotten to go to places like Australia, South Korea, South Mm -hmm. Africa, all these places that I don't think I would have ever been afforded the opportunity to go to. And to say that I'm going there to play tennis, you know, sometimes I'll be on a tennis court and look around and be like, wow, I'm in Japan. How crazy. And I feel really lucky that tennis has allowed me to do that. Um, So I think the mixture of the ability to see the world expand kind of my horizons, and then also it challenges me mentally and physically, and it's challenged me in ways that other sports hadn't, and that's what kept me kind of addicted to tennis. That's the long version answer. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic, and I have a couple follow-up questions as a result of that. So so did you develop your interest in tennis early and right away? I know that uh, I believe your mom took you to a lot of sports camps. So I imagine you played a lot of different sports um, growing up. So how, when when was it? Uh, when, when did tennis resonate with you? Yeah, um, you know, prior to my injury, I had zero inclination to play tennis. I was all about soccer. Um, playing tennis on my feet, I just never really liked it. 
So I'm not really sure why that switched once I started using a wheelchair, but my mom did sign me up for all those camps after I became injured. And I didn't want to go to any of them at first, which I'm sure you heard about. (laughs) I tried rugby, basketball, tennis. And as soon as I tried tennis from a wheelchair, that's when I really liked it. And again, I don't really know why there was that distinction. Maybe I was older um, trying it. And because tennis is one of those sports where it's a little more technical. And I think for not all kids, but for some kids, maybe like me trying a technical sport like that. So early on, maybe kind of put me off. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just remember picking up a racket at that camp when I was around 13 years old and meeting some of the coaches and meeting the other kids. And that was just like a profound moment for me. And I remember hitting a forehand and it just felt so good. And I just wanted to do it again and again and again. So since that age of 13, I would say that it it clicked. Yeah. And and you, you mentioned your, your injury. I know that you you um got a rare neurological uh disease that kind of impacted your spinal cord. Yeah. Uh I think I think you were around 10 years old, if I remember. I was 10 and a half. Yeah. I was running sprints at soccer practice. Like I said, that was my sport of mm-hmm. choice. I played every week. And um I was doing suicides. And I remember my lower back, like specifically my tailbone area, just started feeling like it was on fire. And then it was like someone was stabbing me. Like that's the only way I can liken that amount of pain. And I remember um, keeping running, like kept going because, you know, nothing bad had happened to me. No one hit me. I wasn't sick. So I just thought maybe I pulled a muscle, like just keep going. Mm -hmm. And um, my legs felt heavier and heavier. And then um, flash forward to about two, maybe three hours ahead of that. And my legs went like pins and needles, like when your hand falls asleep. And then I remember trying to move my foot and looked at it and just nothing was happening. And so my parents um, luckily were both doctors at Children's Hospital in San Diego, where I'm from. And they rushed me to the ER And because they were doctors, I I think I kind of got to skip that crazy ER line, which is the reason why I think I was able to get um, some function back in my legs because the way that this autoimmune disease works, it attack your immune system attacks your spine and it causes swelling in your spine. And you know how you have all those nerve bundles in your spinal cord, Mm -hmm. that swelling can really damage those nerves, which was the pain that I was feeling. But if you get into the hospital fast enough and get steroids in your system, it stops the swelling. And so it can preserve some of that nerve function, which is what happened for me, luckily. Um, So I have to thank my parents for having the jobs that they did. But yeah, countless MRI scans. And um, then they found out I got transverse myelitis, which happens to like one in a million people every year. So it's like I won a really weird lottery. (laughs) But um, yeah, that's what happened. So was it like a light switch then? Almost like, you know, I'm I'm running drills in soccer practice one minute and then and then boom, and then it impacted you the rest of the way, or was there yes. was there a time where the pain was sporadic in and out, or or no, it just it, like a light switch? It was literally a light switch. I remember it was it was pain, 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 severe pain, um, up until the point when I tried to move my legs, and then it just nothing happened. And then after that, it was like the light switch was off, like you said. And anything below my belly button or T10, if we're being specific, Mm -hmm. um, I could not feel or move that. And it was that way for months. Um, So I was in the hospital, was in rehab, had to learn to sit up again, do everything again. And then around, I don't exactly know the specific timeline, but it was months later, I think. I was getting ready for school and I twitched my big toe just like a fraction of an inch Mm -hmm. and was like, mom, you know, like it's waking up again. 
And she said that it was like having a baby again, because I had to learn to crawl and stand and walk. But I'm lucky that those things came back, like the nerves kind of woke up again, because the prognosis with a disease, like what happened to me is if you don't get that medical attention, it's done. So um, in the grand scheme of things, I'm really lucky. And, and since it is so rare, was it diagnosed right away? Or, I mean, like, you know, when I know when there's often when there's a, a rare disease and there are hospitals or doctors that aren't familiar with it, then they just don't know how to diagnose it. They don't know how to yeah. treat it. I think I was really lucky that they did have a diagnosis. I believe that first night that I was there, it did take mm. hours and hours, but they did diagnose me. But I've been to um, different transverse myelitis or TM like conventions afterwards and heard some stories about people that were sent home that, and the doctors thought they were having growing pains or something like that and, and completely missed it. So they couldn't get those, you know, steroids in their system that I was lucky to get. So, um, I'm really lucky, but I know that in different parts of the country or the world, it's definitely misdiagnosed or missed completely. And there's still no, um, there's not enough research on it. So they still don't know why it happens. So I still don't know why it happened to me. Yeah, if there if there was a, a reason or some, you know something environment yeah. or just something I, that triggered it. I wasn't sick beforehand, and I like I said I wasn't you know hit or tackled or anything, and no one else in my family has had this, so it's a genuine kind of mystery. Yeah, and and at, at ten years old, I mean, obviously, what was going through your mind? You know, you're you're just uh, entering. You know, you're not even in your adolescence yet. You, <laughs> Well, and, and then the second kind of question that I have is kind of a two-part, you can, you can answer one or both, okay. is knowing what you know now, what advice would you have given your 10-year-old self then? Because there are a lot of, lot of 10-year-olds, you know, that, are, that do have a, a circumstance or something that happens in their life, and yeah. you've been through it, you know, you've been through it. So what advice would you have given yourself? It's such a good question. I, the things I'm about to say are things I probably should still take as advice myself. <laughs> um, I think, you know, as a 10 year old, when this happened to me, it was really hard. Um, I think I went through a period of denial for sure. Um, I remember, you know, your brain kind of like gives you that selective amnesia, certain things you don't mm -hmm. really remember. So there's mm -hmm. only bits and pieces of that time that are really clear to me. But I do remember being in the hospital and, you know, I was getting gifts from friends and I remember getting a stationary set and telling my mom that I was going to use that at sixth grade camp in a couple months, you know, not fully processing that, like, I'm not going to camp. And, um, then I remember later the doctors kind of would say like, yeah, the odds of you walking again are very slim, blah, blah, blah. And um, I remember finally having that like come to a moment, like, okay, this is like, this is for real. And that, that was very hard. And I think, like you said, like I wasn't even an adolescent yet. And especially as a girl, you really want to fit in. You want to look like the other girls, you mm -hmm. want to look cute. You know, you're starting to get crushes on boys and all of that stuff. So to, compound all of those things, which are hard enough for anybody, disability or not, with a disability and having to figure out, you know, like a clunky old wheelchair. Cause you know, at that time I hadn't figured out, you know, streamlined chairs and having one fit nicely to my body. And so to figure that out, um, that was really hard. And I remember that my friends were really supportive. I was lucky that I was still at a school where everyone knew me already. And they had known me for a long time. So I think I didn't have to deal with trying to make new friends mm -hmm. and all that stuff off the bat. So that really helped. I think I was really lucky in that respect. But still, just getting used to my new body and all of that stuff was really hard. I think that my advice for myself 
I think that, and, and anyone can take this probably at any stage of their life. I think that we worry so much about what we look like that we forget that everyone else is worried about what they look like too. And they're spending so much time worrying about themselves that they're not even really focusing on you. Like, yes, someone notices that I'm in a wheelchair and this and that, but that's only for a couple seconds. And they're back to worrying about like, oh, is my dress showing my butt? Or like, is something else going on? And I think that's something that I wish that I took to heart a little bit more as a kid. I think I was so obsessed with the fact that I looked different, that I assumed that people wouldn't like me or I assumed that I would have to try harder to make people like me. And, and that is something that I've embodied to today. I think I, I try to be funnier or look prettier or whatever to kind of overcompensate. But mm-hmm. I wish that I could internalize the fact that, yes, I'm different, but that's become one of my greatest strengths. Like, um, you know, having a wheelchair doesn't necessarily mean that you're broken. We all know that. Like I've done so many things in my life that I wouldn't have the opportunity to even do had I not become disabled. And that's become one of my biggest assets, you know? Um, and I think that's just something that I wish I learned to embrace the fact that I was different and saw it as a strength earlier than, than I did. Your point right on is everybody's worried about themselves and, and, and everyone's overcompensating for, uh, you know, what, what is considered a, or perceived as, you know, a, a weakness or perceived as something different or, or that, that, that we may lack or, or, or not have or whatever. And, yeah. and so it doesn't matter, you know, and, and so I think kids or anybody realizing that, um, that we're all overcompensating in some way, I think. Exactly. It's almost like, you know, you might see your friend trip and fall and you laughed at it for a second, but a minute later, you're done and thinking about the next thing where that person that fell, they're thinking about that the whole time. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if that person that fell realized that the other person's already not thinking about it anymore, it would really relieve a lot of stress that we kind of put on ourselves. And I think that's something that a lot of kids, especially teenagers, really internalize all this pressure to look perfect and be perfect and act perfect when other people aren't really considering you as much as you think they are. And I think that would really free up a lot of people's worries. It would free up mine if I could go back to 10-year-old me for sure. And, and so you, you talked about your mom taking you to these camps. For, my first question is, and I always am curious because nowadays, you know, there are more and more opportunities and more and more programs. But how did your mom uh, find these camps? Because I, mean, I, I think that parents often, you know, just, you know, they might not get enough credit. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so how did your mom discover these camps? You know, I don't know 100% how she did it. All I know is that my mom is, I'm sure many people would say this about their moms, but my mom is exceptional. Like if she wants to do something, she will do it. And I know that she had always been determined to not let this disability change me. Um, And she made that very clear. She was like, you know, just because you use a wheelchair now does not mean that you have license to sit on the couch, to not exercise, to not be you. And that was the best thing that she could have ever, you know, kind of forced down my throat at the time because I just wanted to wallow. And she was like, not happening. And so like, like I said before, she signed me up for all these camps. And I think that she had heard about them from rec therapists when I was in the hospital. I think they kind of introduced her to that. And then I think that she went online and she subscribed to all these different um, publications because I think she said that she discovered um, the tennis camp I went to in a newsletter. And I'm not really sure which that was specifically, but she, she's very resourceful, my mom. And I think it also helps that she's in the medical field. So she probably knew the people to talk to and ask, but, um, for anyone listening, like talk to rec therapists, 
look up in your city, all the different rec programs they have, because there's a lot everywhere. And she found all of them in San Diego. That's for sure. <laughs> so when, when you decided to, I guess, narrow in on, on tennis, did you kind of just focus, drop other sports so that you can concentrate? Cause obviously being an elite athlete, you know, takes a, a lot of time, <laughs> a, a lot of effort. So uh, how old were you when you, when you decided, you know, I want to focus on tennis. I want to, uh, you know, strive to, to be the best and strive to, to go as far as I can go. Um, I was probably 15 or 16, but I didn't drop other sports until I went to college because I had heard from a lot of other people. And luckily I did that. If you play other sports like basketball, it's really good cross training and it helps with your chair skills. And so I played basketball all through middle school and high school. And I think that was really invaluable to me, understanding a chair, being able to move. And, um, so I did that up until college. And then once you hit college, like you were saying, like you really have to make a choice. Like there's not time in the day to do two collegiate level sports. And that's when I really picked tennis and um, have been doing tennis pretty much ever since then. And um, what was the moment like um, when you, you know, realized that you were going to your first Paralympic games in, in uh, 2016 in Rio? That was awesome um, for a lot of reasons. When when I went to college, I think I had just become a little bit burned out um, with tennis. And I don't know if that's because at a young age, and I'm not saying my mom forced me into it, but I didn't make the active choice to play tennis as such. It was something that was presented to me and then it, it worked out great. And then I just kept going. It, do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. that was exactly what I needed at that time in my life. But I think once I got to college, there were all these new experiences in front of me. And I think those were more interesting to me at the time. So I ended up taking a couple years off of tennis. I didn't play tennis at all. Um, and then about a year before Rio, I remember just kind of thinking that I'd lost a big part of my identity. I think everybody has that thing about them that when you introduce yourself to someone, you have something to lead with about yourself, that whether it's a hobby you have or your profession or whatever. And tennis was that for me. And so I think not having that was really hard. Um, and I started to realize that and was talking with a friend and she was like, why don't you, you know, email the coach and, you know, get back on the team and play some tennis. And, and at that point I realized, well, the, the games are coming up and all these people that I talked to were like, well, you've only got a year to qualify. Like you're not going to do it. And I, I'm really, stubborn. that is, that is a short window. <laughs> it's a very short window, but I'm very stubborn and I don't like to take no for an answer if there's a chance, you know? Like my mom is always liking me to a football player. She always says that if there's something I want, I'm going to try for it. Like first down, second down, third down, fourth down. And so for me, I was like, you know what? I know it's hard, but I'm going to try. And I asked the school for, for a leave of absence. And I was shocked that my mom said like, yeah, you should try it. I thought for sure she'd like school, school, school. Cause that's always how she was. And so um, within a year I did qualify just by the skin Skin mm -hmm. in my teeth is for women. We have to be top 22 in the world. And I think I was maybe 21 um, at the cutoff date. And so when I qualified for Rio, that was just like, I was so proud of myself. I felt like I had found my identity again. I qualified for games. I was so excited. So it was, it was a mixture of emotions really, but just pride really. And feeling like I really made it for sure. And, and talk a little bit about what your, you know, your daily or normal training regimen looks like. Um, well, now my daily regimen is a lot different than it's ever been before now that I live in Orlando and I'm training full time. Um, prior to this, I'd always balance tennis with school, um, like an in-person schooling. So I had mm -hmm. to do it more or less part time. 
But now um, I have a session on court for a couple hours every morning, um, every weekday morning, that is. And then in the afternoons, I either have another session on court or I have a couple hours of conditioning and gym stuff. So every single day I'm doing something. Um, And then, you know, there's also mental skills calls that I have with um, a mental skills coach once a week. And then there's also nutrition that you take into account. There's a nutritionist that we meet with. There's also physios that I go in for treatment, like regular, um, just to kind of stave off injuries and stuff. And that's almost every day. So it's literally become a full-time job, which I, I wasn't, um, expecting it to take up so much of my day, but it really does, but I'm really enjoying it. It's, um, there's a lot more to tennis than I gave it credit for in terms of like the rehab and the mental skills side and the gym side and the on-court side. It's not just being on court. It's so many other things. And I'm finally being exposed to that. And I love it. And, and obviously now that you are training full-time, what are your expectations uh, in the, in the coming months or, or, or even, even down the road beyond that? Yeah. Um, I always feel funny answering questions like this. Cause I, I hate sounding cocky, but I, um, you know, I, I told myself prior to moving to Orlando full-time, I was like, you know what, you've become top 10 in the world playing tennis part-time. What could you do if you did it full-time? Mm-hmm. And so that was something that really drove me to, to move here. Cause I was like, I don't want to hang up my racket, so to speak, or retire without seeing what I could do. I don't want to have any what ifs. And after moving here and having some great matches, like recently I beat the world number four, which was a career best for me. And So I'm just seeing improvements in myself and my coach, (laughs) he's always saying like, you know, I I see you top three in the world, potentially world number one, like if you keep going. And so, you know, you hear comments like that and they stick in your brain. So, you know, of course the short-term goal would be to get a medal in Tokyo. I would absolutely love to be able to do that. Um, I've had great matches with every person in the top 10. Um, I'm currently ranked number nine. So to be able to get a medal there is definitely not, um, completely unfathomable. It's definitely, it, it would be something that would be unexpected from the other people there, right, but I, right. I think that I could do it. Um, yeah, it would be considered an upset, right? If a number, it, number it nine takes down a, a one, two sure. or three or four, right? Yeah. 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 So that's, that's something I would love to be able to do. And what I'm, what I'm thinking of during training now, um, after that, Um, I would love to be world number one. I would love to get to play all the slams. Wheelchair tennis is different in that. Um, when I say slams, I mean the majors. So like the U S open Wimbledon, Roland Garros and Australian open, um, we're different though, in that at those big events, which coincide with the able-bodied tournament, we're only allowed to have the top seven in the world play with, um, one wild card. So even if you're ranked nine in the world, like me, you're still not good enough to play in a major, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, the draws are just crazy small and they're, they're looking at increasing them, but you know, that would be my next kind of goal after Tokyo to break into that top seven and be able to play all those slams. I'm lucky enough that I get the wild card usually to play the U S open, but I'd like to play all four of them. So that's kind of the next bucket and, list item. And do you see any changes in, in equity or parity in terms of increasing the number of the beyond seven? I have heard talk about it. I know that there have been a lot of conversations because the way that our ranking system works, it heavily favors the people that are in the top seven, just because at majors, that's where all the money is like a ton Mm -hmm. of money and a ton of points. So if you're in that 
kind of range, you kind of stay there just because you get to play right. those events. And it's unless you have a great run, it's really hard to break into that. So a lot of people have pushed for there to be bigger draw sizes also just because the depth of the field is a lot better now. So having more people play at the events, not only is more interesting to spectators, but you're still going to have great matches. And I think when they first um, started um, bringing us into those bigger tournaments, it probably made sense to have the smaller draws because those were the best players. But now that our sport has evolved so much, I think it's time to increase it. And I think the ITF, the International Tennis Federation, that's our governing body. I think they recognize that and they're pushing for that. It's just a matter of when it'll happen, hopefully soon. Yeah, indeed. And, and for those that may not be familiar in the sport of wheelchair tennis, do you play on different courts or is it just one standard courts? One standard we court? play on all of the different surfaces. So hard courts for sure. Um, then there's, we do have a clay season and we also play on grass at Wimbledon. So um, every single surface and yes, um, clay is harder to push on for sure. And grass is harder to push on. Um, clay is my least favorite just because you get so dirty, but, but yeah, we play on all the different surfaces. The only difference in rules between able-bodied and wheelchair tennis is that we can use a second bounce mm -hmm. as long as the first bounce is within the regulation court, but we use the same tennis courts, the same net height, same rules. Um, that's the only difference. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, the, the grass and clay courts. I could, just, <laughs> I could just imagine. And then yeah, al yeah. along those lines, um, uh, what about, you know, how do you enjoy playing singles and, and doubles and, and, and maybe talk about, um, you know, playing the, the difference between, you know, playing uh, singles versus doubles, et cetera. I love the fact that we get to play both singles and doubles. I think growing up playing soccer and like a team sport and then also playing basketball, I really gravitate towards working with people. Mm -hmm. And so I really enjoy doing that with doubles, um, especially if you're playing with a good friend because, you know, you're, you're teaming up against other people quite literally. And when it goes great, you get to celebrate with someone. Um, that's something that I really, really love. Also just the strategy in doubles is a little bit different because the court is just a couple feet wider. So you can do a different, you know, different angles. You can run different plays with someone, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm going to loop the ball, then you go in or things like that. I find it a little bit more dynamic, which can be very fun. Um, but then singles, as much as I don't get as excited for singles prior to playing, when you're playing a singles match and you're playing really well, there's no feeling like it because you know that you're doing that and it's all mm -hmm. you, you know, in a, in a team sport, you guys might be having a great game, but you don't necessarily have to play that well to have your whole team play great with tennis. You got to do it all. And so I think it's a great feeling when you've had a great day on court, because you know that your training that you've put in has kind of led you to that point. And, um, I really like that. And it's taught me self-reliance and a lot of other things that I don't think I would have learned otherwise. So I, I love both of them for different reasons, but if you had to ask me if to go play a match right now, I'd pick a doubles match for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know there's often a big difference between uh, people's perception or or uh, yeah. preferences between an individual sport and a team sport. And since you grew up in team sports, you have you know that that bias you know maybe towards it a little bit too. For sure. And besides tennis, uh, I know that you know back to, back to your mom's school, school, school. You <laughs> yeah. are you are adamant about uh, uh, pursuing uh, higher education. You're working on your doctorate. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're pursuing and and what your goal is in in that arena. Sure. So, um, like you said, yeah, school has always been a big priority for me. 
Um, I grew up with um, an Asian mom, not to stereotype, but you know, the, the stereotypes come from somewhere. <laughs> and my mom has heavily favored academics. She's always said school is my job. And I'm so thankful for that because, you know, for any athlete, you can't play for the rest of your life. Like, and especially in today's job market, like you need all sorts of higher education to even be considered for jobs and stuff nowadays. So um, I'm thankful that my mom's always pushed that. And I, I got my undergraduate degree in speech and hearing sciences at University of Arizona. And with that undergraduate degree, you have to get um, a master's or a doctorate, depending on if you pick speech pathology or audiology. Mm-hmm. And I picked audiology. Um, so that's for people that don't know what that is. That's more or less a hearing doctor. So the person that diagnoses how bad your hearing loss is, what type of hearing loss you have, because there are different types. Um, and then helps you figure out what intervention is needed, whether it's surgery or it's hearing aids or um, something like that. So that's that's what I picked. And um, again, like tennis, that's problem solving. I really like it that each patient is different. You have to do different tests. It's kind of like, you know, you do one test and that leads you to the next one, leads you to the next one. It's like a big puzzle. And so um, that's another another thing about me, I guess, just I like puzzles and I like figuring stuff out. So that's something that I've, I really enjoyed um, just because it's also an interpersonal field. So you're working with people and you're helping them. And <clears throat> excuse me, I think just being someone that has gone through the healthcare system as a child and had someone really impact my life, I wanted to be able to kind of do that for someone else. And the field of audiology literally treats a sense, a human sense. And so when you help someone improve their hearing or regain their hearing, the impact on their life is huge. Like for a young kid that helps them in school, that helps them learn language. And so um, I love that I've gotten to kind of learn how to help someone that way. Um, But ultimately, I used to want to be a pediatric audiologist just because again, I love working with kids and I was in the hospital as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not sure because now I've had some clinical rotations working with adults and I really enjoyed that too. So I don't know. I think ultimately I want to work in a clinical setting because I do want to work with people. I wouldn't want to work in a lab or anything like that, but I, I'm not as sure now that I want to work with kids as much as adults. I think I'd be happy with either one. And my second to last question for Dana is what is your mantra or what is your, you know, life quote, or what do you live by? Such a good question. I always wish that I had like, bang, here it is. Um, (laughs) A lot of different ones. I think it's kind of morphed over time. You know, when I was in the hospital and I was going through all the rehab and stuff, I think it was never take no for an answer. And, you know, within reason, like don't Mm -hmm. be insane. But I think if I didn't have more or less that stubborn mentality, I wouldn't have taken to my physical therapy the way I did, or I wouldn't have tried to qualify for Rio. Um, So I think it's pretty healthy to not accept that initial no. If you're really passionate about something, like whether it's a rejection from medical school or a rejection from whatever, like if you really want something, try again. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's always been something that I've lived my life by. Um, But another one that I've, I've really kind of liked, I don't remember where I heard the quote, but it, it basically said that you should always chase your butterflies. Mm -hmm. And to me, um, 
I kind of interpret that as like, you know, as you get butterflies in your tummy when something really matters to you or you're excited or you're nervous or anxious. And a lot of times you get butterflies when something big or momentous is about to happen to you, like something that matters. And if you're not getting butterflies in your stomach, then you're probably not doing anything that worthwhile mm-hmm. with your life, right? You're kind of stagnant. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've kind of tried to adopt that idea of chasing butterflies, chasing bigger dreams, chasing, you know, doing things that scare me. Um, because anyway, again, within reason, I'm not going to go jump off a bridge just for the thrill, you know, and bungee jump, but, um, you know, chasing things like getting a, getting a clinical doctorate or trying to meddle in Tokyo. Those are the things that you'll look back later on and be like, gosh, I'm so glad I did that. So I guess between those two things, those are more or less my, my mantras. That's awesome. And I know you have a, you do some speaking and other uh, engagements, you have a website. And so tell folks what that is, if they want to, you know, kind of connect with you or, and any social media platforms that you're on. Sure. I'm, um, I'm on every social media platform except for Twitter. So I don't, you know, I just don't think I have enough interesting stuff to say on Twitter. Maybe I do. I'm not sure. But um, on Instagram, I'm Dana.Matthewson and that's Matthewson with one T. Everyone always wants to put two T's in there, but it's just one. Um, Facebook is just my name and my website is DanaMatthewson.net. So yeah, if anyone wants to follow me, send me a message or anything, I'm more than happy to chat with you. Well, speaking of chatting with you, it was wonderful to do so. So thank you for for joining us. (laughs) Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.